0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Matthew Taylor. I'm the RSA's chief executive, and I'd like to welcome you all to today's online event. I'm thrilled to have the chance to talk to a very special guest today Dr. Vivek Murphy. Dr. Murphy served as Surgeon General of the United States from 2014 to 2017 under President Barack Obama. He's set to reprise this role for President Biden, who's also appointed him as co-chair of the COVID-19 Advisory Board, which is tackling the ongoing coronavirus crisis in the USA. So we're incredibly fortunate that Vivek is spending time with us today. During his tenure as Surgeon General, Dr. Murphy's agenda focused on issues such as teen e-cigarette use, the opioid addiction crisis and calling out gun violence as a public health issue, which as I'm sure you can imagine was quite controversial. Alongside all of this, Dr. Murphy has written a widely praised book on the loneliness crisis. It's called Together, Loneliness, Health and What Happens When We Find Connection. And it's that that I'm really keen to talk with him about today. So, Vivek, welcome. And I have to start with asking you whether I have pronounced your name correctly. And the reason this is important, apart from just politeness, is that in your book, I noticed there's a point at which you say that pronouncing people's names correctly is just one of those little things that helps us feel a sense of connection. And when our name is got wrong, it's one of the things that makes us feel a little bit more distant. So, how did I do?
1: Well, Matthew, first, let me just say how nice it is to speak with you and be with you today. And thank you for asking about how to pronounce my name. Uh, You were very close. Uh, So I can tell you that my first name is pronounced Vivek. The V-I is like the V-I in Victor. The V-E-K rhymes with Lake. And that's how I used to teach people uh, when I was in school, uh, how to say my name. Uh, in the beginning, they just started calling me Victor Lake. Uh, unfortunately, so even when I go to reunions today, I have people call me Victor. Uh, but Vivek is the right pronunciation. You were very close.
0: Right, thank you. Um, let, let's just start with the most basic question. And I love the book, by the way. I've been been, been reading it all week. And um, thank it's you. Funny, reading a book about loneliness. Your book has been a companion to me all week. Um, oh. Let's just start with. Well, let's start with the most basic. What is loneliness?
1: Hmm. Well, loneliness is a subjective feeling, first of all. It's not an objective measure of how many people we have around us. And loneliness is the feeling that the connections we need in our life are greater than the connections we have. And in that gap, we experience loneliness. Uh, the reason this distinction between loneliness and isolation, uh, isolation being a more objective term describing how many people we have around us. The reason that is such an important distinction is because we sometimes assume that if we have many people around us, if we're on a college campus, for example, as a student and are surrounded by thousands of other students, or if we work in a, a setting that has many people or live in a, um, you know, in a neighborhood with lots of people around us, that somehow that means that we are uh, immune to loneliness. But, but that is not the case. Because people can be surrounded by many people, but be feel quite alone if they don't feel a strong sense of connection to them. They can also be surrounded by very few people, but not feel lonely at all if, they, if those relationships are marked by trust, by open communication, uh, and a sense of real companionship. So, so
0: one of the things uh, uh, that was kind of quite poignant for me about the book, Vivek, was that one of the Early speakers we had at the RSA. I've been running the RSA for fifteen years, and so I'm and I'm leaving in a few months. So I'm looking at looking back. And John Cassiope was one of the early speakers that we had at the RSA. And
1: oh my you know, gosh,
0: speakers no making a pressure on an impression on you in, in all sorts of ways. But the thing that he said that has always stuck in my mind. I've told innumerable people about it. Is that the relationship between isolation and loneliness is the reverse of what you often think it to be. That it isn't that the isolation leads to the loneliness. It's that the, the the feelings which are involved in loneliness, the anxiety, the depression, that leads to behaviour, which then often leads to isolation. And that's a point that you make in the book. and And I think that one of the values of your book and 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 John Cassiope's work and other work is. Is we don't really understand loneliness. We have a particular view of loneliness, and as you say, we link it to isolation. And we need to understand it better because it's much more complex than that.
1: That's absolutely the case. And this is there's so many counterintuitive things about loneliness, and this happens to be one of them. Uh, you know, John Casio. I'm so glad that you've had him on in the past. He's um, you know a hero of mine. He I had the privilege of meeting him when I served as Surgeon General. He came to our office to present. Uh, on his work, and I have since worked with his um, uh, with his uh, partner, Dr. Stephanie Cassiopo, since his passing. Uh, but what he raises, which uh, I talk about in the book, is this important phenomenon that loneliness begets loneliness. And if you wanna understand why that is, it, it has to do with how we evolved as human beings thousands and thousands of years ago, uh, as beings who really needed connection to others to ensure safety. To ensure we had an adequate food supply, when we were together taking turns, you know, watching, uh, you know, at night, uh, you know, for predators, when we were sharing our food supply, uh, we did better together. Uh, we tended not to have boom and bust days, and in terms of food, and and you know, where we would starve on some days and be well fed on others. Um, and but, so what happened in, in that setting is when we were separated from our group, uh, we were in a state of threat, more likely to starve or be attacked by predators and over time uh, that became baked into our nervous system such that even though our circumstances are so different today thousands of years later our nervous system still behaves when we are lonely as it did thousands of years ago when we were on the tundra uh, we tend to experience an elevated stress response we are become hypervigilant because we are looking for threats around us even if there's a 1% chance that that twig that cracks behind us is a predator we want to interpret it as a threat because our life may depend on it. But imagine how those kind of reactions play in the modern world, uh, where if we become hyper vigilant and suspicious of those around us, it actually makes it harder to forge uh, connections with people. Uh, if we also become much more focused on ourselves, which is what happens when you're lonely, because again, you're worried about your safety and well being, you can come across as self centered or overly self absorbed uh, to others. And perhaps most insidious, uh, uh, but most harmful, is the impact loneliness has on our sense of self. Uh, over time, we come to believe when we're lonely that we're lonely because we're not likable, because something is broken uh, within us, which makes it harder to take a risk and, and a chance in conversation. So in that way, loneliness can be a downward spiral. And part of the, the challenge and the mission to build a more connected society and a more connected life He's figuring out how do we break that downward spiral so that we can once again, rebuild connection, which is what we're naturally called to do.
0: So that reminds me of that kind of insight um, I've heard from philosophers and neuroscientists, which can be summed up really as the fact that human beings are seeking to traverse a modern world with a prehistorically evolved brain. Hmm. And what is it do you think Vivek that is what are the characteristics of modern society that most foster loneliness, do you think? Is it simply the kind of mass society, you know, the kind of lonely crowd phenomenon? You talk quite a lot in the book about technology and social media. So what do you see as being the kind of key drivers, inequality some people might talk about, or mobility that pe- move, people move around? I wonder whether there are particular characteristics of modern society which you think Contribute to
1: loneliness? Well, yes. And this is what is so interesting. Um, you know, Matthew, there are things about modern society which actually enable us to be more together and more connected. And I can, uh, for example, FaceTime relatives in India, whereas when I was growing up, we had to write on these blue aerograms uh, and send them, uh, you know, and all the way to India, and it would take two weeks to get there and two weeks for a reply to come back. So technology has allowed us to connect more readily. We were able to travel and see people who otherwise uh, we wouldn't be able to see. So it has enabled us to be more connected in some ways. But there are many ways in which the both the infrastructure and the culture in modern society uh, promote loneliness and actually work against connection. And, and here's how that, that tends to happen. The same mobility, which allows us to go visit family and friends, also means that we are more, we we tend to leave the communities in which we grew up in uh, as we move for work or for school or for other purposes. And many of us will move multiple times through our life, uh, which means that we are leaving those communities and friendships behind. The other piece to to keep in mind is that technology itself, while it can be a boon, can also be a curse if it's not used uh, in a way that promotes connection. So just think for a moment about how we use our devices today right more and more of our time is taken up in front of screens and that time you know being you know engaged with technology often is time that's taken away from in-person interaction but technology can also dilute the time that we have in person if you are like me you have had a number of conversations over the years where you're talking to a friend but yet somehow your hand slips into your pocket and you pull out your phone and you find yourself refreshing your inbox or uh, you know looking at your social media feed or Googling a question that popped into your head, all the while convincing yourself that you can multitask, whereas the science really tells us very clearly we cannot. So technology can also play the unintended role of distracting us from conversation reducing the quality of our interactions, which can leave us feeling like, yes, we checked the box of having quote unquote, talked to a friend, but we didn't necessarily feel as fulfilled as we otherwise would have. But the last thing to mention is, is a cultural piece, and this is perhaps the most complex, which is that in modern society, <clears throat> we tend to have a narrative that tells us that success is entirely dependent on individual effort uh, and that we are expected to make it uh, or to, to fail on entirely on our own. And that is a very challenging notion uh, if given that we as human beings evolved over thousands of years to be together, to work together, uh, to survive better and to be better together. Uh, and in this new dynamic, it's if you believe that your success is entirely dependent on individual effort, um, then one, that means there is more burden placed on you. It also makes people more hesitant uh, to reveal their weaknesses and to ask for help. Because again, asking for help, it means that I'm not enough. Um, and while we traditionally have seen this uh, you know, more so in men and in young boys as they're raised to believe that masculinity means that you don't need anybody else and you never express emotions, um, modern society has hoisted that same expectation now increasingly on men and women. And, and that can be a very lonely experience. You know, feeling like you can't be yourself, can never admit weakness, and everything is entirely dependent Uh, on you. Um, There's an old African proverb that uh, I mentioned in the book, which I think of often, uh, which proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And that is the the, the lesson of our evolution as human beings over millennia. And in modern society, we have pushed back on that. And I think one of the consequences has been uh, that we are lonely. And that we are, that we feel more isolated uh, than we perhaps have been in years past.
0: So I think that one of the things it, I, it's important for people to understand about this idea of loneliness, which can sound a bit amorphous, a bit almost a bit abstract, maybe it feels like it's a personal thing, but actually, it's a concept. It enables us to bridge social phenomena in a really powerful way. And so, for example. Uh, the links between loneliness and ill health and health inequalities these are objectively demonstrated and and clear and that feeling lonely feeling consistently lonely has an effect on you as concrete as clear as bad diet or smoking or anything else and that it is linked as you say Vivek to characteristics of our society and I think status anxiety is such a big you know, part of that. And that, as you say, technology has all sorts of benign effects. So one of the things that it does is it makes us live in a world of constant status anxiety. You know, somebody said it was bad enough when you had to keep up with the Joneses, but now you have to keep up with the Kardashians. Um, That's probably a slightly out of date kind of reference point. But you know what I mean? That, 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 the construction of society in the way that it is where status is so important and we can compare ourselves with people almost continuously and indeed there are apps that are like Instagram which seem almost invented to encourage a constant kind of competitive status game these have an impact on us and how we feel about ourselves and those impacts lead to illness and early death these are the links in the chain that your book helps us to see
1: Well, Matthew, I think you're hitting on a a central point. And I'll tell you that in my own journey to understand the deeper issue of loneliness, I had to reflect a lot of my own life where I've struggled uh, for a long time uh, with loneliness when I was a child and at at many points during my time as an adult, including frankly, when I served as, as surgeon general in the years afterward. And I also saw loneliness quite often among the patients that I cared for something I never learned about in medical school, uh, but as soon as I got into the hospital, I noticed that so many patients would come in alone. And throughout the course of their stay with us, during really difficult moments, where we had to give them a new diagnosis, or we had to make a really hard decision about what treatment pathway to go down. There was often nobody with them uh, to support them in making those decisions. And even at the time of death, Matthew, there are so many patients for whom the only witnesses to their finally mo- final moments were me and my colleagues uh, in the the hospital. And that was really disturbing to see. But when you think more broadly about what's happening, and when I was Surgeon General I got to talk to people all across America and to people around the world, the most common question I got on this subject of loneliness was, is it due to technology? And in particular, is social media pulling us apart more than it's bringing us together? And I think that that's the right question to ask. Because what social media does is whether intentionally or not, it amplifies a set of values. And the question is, question is what values are being amplified in most people's use of social media? Now, clearly some people you know are able to use social media in ways that really strengthen their connection and bring them together in small trusted groups that can interact more readily and, uh, and more frequently. But for many people, the experience of, of using social media Uh, is experience of comparing your average days to other people's best days. It's the experience of trying to be somebody uh, that you hope others will approve of as demonstrated by the number of likes or retweets or reposts that you get. And and that can be an incredibly frustrating, emotionally draining uh, experience. It can also chip away uh, at your sense of self. Uh, If you think about the cultural piece that we were touching on earlier, we think for a moment about how modern society defines success. We define success as your ability to achieve one of three goals, wealth, fame, or power. And if you have those, we characterize people as successful. We write biographies about them. We tell their stories in the media. Uh, We post about them like on our feeds. But When you think about it, like what truly constitutes success as a human being? True success, and my belief about this, is that true success comes from our ability to live out and demonstrate certain key values that are centered around kindness, generosity, service, and love. When we interact with people who embody those values, we feel good. Those people often contribute a great deal, whether it's in the raising of an individual child, the support of a partner, service to their neighborhoods, or service in public office. Yet we don't think of those values as being the benchmarks of success. There is a study I talk about in the book done by the Harvard Graduate School of Education, which looked at thousands of students uh, across the United States and determined that when, when asked really those students you know, what do your parents wish uh, the most for, for you? Uh, Is it achievement? Is it that you are kind? Um, Or is it that you are happy? And the vast majority of students said that what their parents wanted most for them was achievement, that that would constitute success. And if you think about that, and especially if you think about the fact that most parents actually do want their kids to be kind, something is breaking down in the message that we are conveying to young people in particular, but to all of us about what constitutes a success. And if as a human being, you go through life constantly seeking external sources of validation, uh, seeking more power, wealth and fame so that you can be so more successful so that society feels you have worth and value, that is a race that never ends. And I have encountered so many people with those three assets wealth, power, and fame, who are profoundly unhappy. Yet I've encountered so many who have none of those, but who have deeply fulfilling relationships, who demonstrate the kindness, generosity, uh, compassion, and love that I believe are the intrinsic values that give us worth. And they have a great deal of fulfillment and happiness in our life. So we have to figure out as a society, what values do we really care about? What values do we wanna instill in our children? How do we wanna redefine strength and success uh, as based and and driven by these intrinsic qualities as opposed to those external uh, assets that we may acquire?
0: Yeah, I, I think what's so fascinating about this is the question of those structures in society which lead us away from what we say we really want in insidious ways. And, and I'm reminded slightly here of an idea that I think was developed by the economic historian Avner Offer. He talked about the notion of commitment devices. And what he meant by commitment devices was those things that are developed in society to protect us from our instincts, because our instincts didn't necessarily give us what we wanted, because our instincts evolved in very different circumstances. So marriage, the institution of marriage, uh, limitations on credit, because... the danger that we put short-term gratification ahead of our kind of longer-term interests. Churches, trade unions, which were solidaristic organizations, which led us to put the group ahead of the individual. And what Avneroffer argues is that as we became more affluent in the post-war period, we felt we didn't need these commitment devices anymore. We felt that we were supreme and sovereign individuals who could do whatever we wanted, and that's why you start to see this breakdown in the relationship between affluence and well-being, affluence and contentment. And I think that one of the things we have to do is to is is we probably can't reinvent those old commitment devices, but we have to think of what are the new commitment devices that can help us get what we want. Because I recognize I sometimes say to parents when I'm talking in schools. I say, what would you rather that your child got 10 A's but hated school and was miserable and found learning boring or they got nine A's and they loved learning and they were happy and they wanted to have an inquiry mind throughout their life. Of course, you'd prefer the latter, but all your behaviours and all the behaviours of the system encourage you and incentivize the former. So it's one of the things we have to do because you, like me, as well as being... uh, Incredibly um, distinguished in your medical career, are a policymaker interested in policies? We have to think about what are the kinds of policies that can help us. That can, in the words of behavioral economics, change our choice architecture, so that we become more able to make the choices that 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 meet our needs.
1: I mean, that's beautifully put, and and you are right that we, as we have become more affluent as society has entered the modern age in recent decades, we have left certain institutions and practices behind that were a source of connection and community. We find, for example, that in a number of countries, including the United States, that uh, attendance, for example, uh, in faith communities has has declined and participation there has, on, uh, has gone down over recent decades. We also find that participation in Social organizations, uh, you know, has also declined. The number of people who have friends over for for meals has declined, and that's pre-pandemic, uh, to be clear. Uh, and so, as we think about this, uh, we've left behind many of the institutions that were buffers for us, that ensured that we had some sense of connection and community. Uh, I think about my parents often. You know, they grew up in India, and while they didn't have much in the way of of wealth growing up, particularly my father, uh, who for much of his life uh, grew up quite poor uh, and in a small village uh, in in rural South India, they never felt lonely. In fact, my father told me that the first time he really experienced loneliness was when he left India. And it was a time when he didn't have extended family um, in, in the village, even though you had your extended family, but just the whole village was like a family. People knew each other. They had been there for generations. They looked out for each other. Um, and he didn't have that. And so I think one of the things like I, I think about often is I think about my children who are young, who are four and three at the moment. And I look at them each day and I I think, you know what is the world going to be like for them? Are they going to be happy uh, when they grow up? Are they going to be the people to take care of them, to look out for them? Are they going to feel compelled to look out for and take care of others. These are the things I wonder about um, with my kids. And as much as, you know, that pendulum has swung, I think away from community and connection and toward individualism and isolationism, I think it is the choices we make as individuals, as neighborhoods, uh, as a society that can shift that pendulum more back to the center where we don't give up necessarily uh, our pursuit uh, perhaps of, you know, success in, you know, more modern terms, but where we recognize what truly gives us satisfaction and we invest in those areas. And that inevitably comes back to community and connection. One of the ways in which your book is generous is the way that you
0: talk about your own experience and the loneliness that you felt at certain points in your life or a particular moment near the end of the book, you talk about the acute sense of loneliness you had when you're young daughter was ill and you were worried and 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 how desperately you needed people uh, around you and then people did rally around but it was an insight for you and, and I, I I want to be personal as well because I, I you know I I want to say to people who are watching this you know this this is interesting in terms of psychology sociology neuroscience and all that but there is a strong personal element to it and when I read your book I I reminded I was reminded of 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 when I listened to John Cassiope all those years ago, and, and, you know, I'm somebody who's always suffered from kind of low level anxiety all my life. It's just been there for me. And I just put up with it. I accept it. It's just the way that it is. And yet, when I look back, and I, your book reminded me of it, I, I think, well, what is the strongest characteristic of my own childhood? And it was loneliness. I have no brothers, I have no sisters, I have no cousins. I went to six different schools by the time I was 11 years old. And, you know, I think that, that we often as human beings put up with things. We put up with feelings of anxiety or sadness or frailty. And often your book reminds us that may well be based in a moment of loneliness, a time of loneliness. And if we can go back and we can think about that, we can maybe be more gentle with ourselves if we can remember that. That part of the kind of therapeutic process is to go back to that time when you were lonely and in a sense almost put your arms around the lonely person that you were so that you're taking away from them the sense that it was their fault and saying no it wasn't your fault that's just where you were. And those kinds of ideas in the stories that you tell in the book come up again and again and again and I think that it is a really good thing for everybody actually to just reflect on when they were lonely in their life and what effect it might've had on them and what it might still mean for them. That is a useful process, I think, for us all to go through.
1: Matthew, I I couldn't agree more. And what you're bringing up, I think, is an essential point uh, that I hope everyone takes away from this conversation, which is that loneliness is extraordinarily common It is part of the human experience. If you are lonely, if you've been lonely, you are not alone. And it also doesn't mean that you are broken in any way. In fact, we've learned that loneliness is is a natural signal like hunger or thirst that our body sends us when we lack something that we need for our survival, which is a social connection. So there is no shame in feeling lonely, even though society often tells us Uh, that we've done something wrong or, you know, if if we somehow find ourselves alone on a Friday night or if we feel uh, lonely on the playground, you know, or in the cafeteria at school. Um, You know, for me, this was, is very personal. You know, the experiences I've had, uh, you know, being lonely as a child were extremely painful. You know, I I still remember them uh, very viscerally uh, to this day. And I know that, I know now that there were millions and millions of other children having a very similar experience. Um, But at the time I didn't know that. And it just seemed like I was the only one uh, who was somehow isolated. But I think when we understand how common loneliness is, it gives us an opportunity to be compassionate with ourselves, but also to look at others and to recognize that they may too be experiencing loneliness. Here's what is tricky about loneliness is it doesn't look like a person sitting alone in the corner of a room at a party, it doesn't always look like uh, the child in school who's eating by themselves at lunchtime. But loneliness can manifest as anger and irritability. It can manifest as as sadness. It can look like withdrawal uh, from others. Uh, for some people, it'll be, they'll be they uh, you know become more stoic and uh, less expressive. You know when they're lonely. Loneliness can look like many different things. It can look like depression. It can look like anxiety. And if we look around us, we probably know people who are angry and irritable who are experiencing depression or loneliness or anxiety or symptoms similar to that. And now I I ask myself often in those scenarios, especially when I encounter somebody who might frustrate me a bit because they are angry and irritable. I ask myself, is there loneliness behind that curtain, if you will, Uh, are they perhaps feeling isolated and is that generating anxiety or sadness or or anger? Particularly in men, especially in older men, it's a very common finding that anger and irritability are the manifestations of loneliness. So I think the more we understand loneliness, the more we understand the human condition and how this is manifesting like in our day-to-day lives. And my hope is that we can respond to that with forgiveness, with compassion, with a sense of a deeper understanding that we are in fact more deeply tied to one another by this experience of loneliness. But the last point to remember here is that also gives us a special power, the power to help heal uh, the pain of loneliness in each other's lives. And it doesn't have to be complicated. We don't need to have a medical degree or a degree in psychology to be able to help those who are struggling with loneliness. What we need to be able to do is simply show up with our full selves, ready to listen, ready to understand, uh, ready to be there uh, for them, even if it's just for a few moments. And this point about listening is absolutely essential because in a society that is so driven by action, it can be tempting or easy to think about listening as a passive uh, activity and not even as an activity at all but as a lack of activity. But listening is one of the most powerful things that we can do to help people feel less lonely and more connected. When you listen to someone else, you're not just hearing the words that they're saying, you are sending them a message that they matter, that you see them, that they have value. And that's one of the most powerful, powerful messages you can send to another human being.
0: Yeah, and I... In case people feel that, that, that relating loneliness to what has happened in your past might lead to a kind of fatalism, which is, well, you know, it, it, it's, it's deep in you. As you say, there are things that can be done about it. And I wanted to share with you, Vivek, that um, uh, not just because of COVID, but because of other things in my kind of working life. Yeah, I've been feeling kind of a bit cut off. Uh, for a while, and I was talking to my wife, complaining, I guess, about stuff and not all knowing what to do. And she simply said, Well, why don't you try giving back something? Mm-hmm. And so I volunteered for the local food bank. And on a Friday afternoon, in fact, it's Friday afternoon now, uh, I have just done my food bank run. And I'm not saying that because I'm saying I'm a great person. I mean, if you think of COVID, the unbelievable sacrifices people have made. My hour and a half, two hours delivering food parcels on Friday is nothing. But yet, the effect on my well-being of doing that has been remarkable. You know, um, it it, it has just got me out of this because I've just met a a few new people because it feels like something where I have no, there's no, ambiguity about it I just know it's a good thing to do even if it's a small thing to do it's a good thing to do and a week last Friday we had a quiz night at my local food, food bank and we were all online and I didn't know any of these people but we all had in common that we were part of this food bank and we were laughing about what happens when you pile up food and things like that so I just tell that story because if you're watching this and you feel lonely you feel isolated actually a very small step a very small step which is usually as you say Vivek about giving back Can make an enormous difference.
1: That's absolutely the case and I'm so glad that that experience of service has helped you feel uh, more connected and part of a larger community. Service turns out to be one of the most powerful antidotes to loneliness because when we serve another person, we not only replace the disconnection of loneliness with a positive connection to someone else but we also remind ourselves that we have value to bring to the world. And one of the greatest casualties of loneliness is our self-esteem, our sense of of worth as a a human being. So that's why uh, service is so powerful. And it's important to think broadly about service. You know, service can be uh, volunteering at a food bank. It can be helping build homes uh, for those who don't have one. Service can also be Checking in on a friend who may be struggling, dropping food off to a neighbor who might be scared to go to the grocery store because they're worried about their risk, you know, of of, of you know getting COVID. Um, service can be offering to virtually babysit for ten minutes uh, via Skype or Zoom uh, for a friend who might be struggling to telework and also homeschool their kids, and just giving them a break for ten minutes where you entertain uh, their children might be one of the best things that happens to them during their day, the point is it's not about how much time we invest, it's about the quality uh, of that time. And if you're thinking, how do we build connection like in this uh, pandemic age and even beyond, service stands out as a powerful way to do that. But another couple of other things that are worth keeping in mind is to focus on the quality of time that we spend with one another, recognizing that five minutes of conversation where we're deeply focused on the other person, where we're fully present, where we're sharing openly can be more powerful than a half hour, an hour of distracted conversation. And I would also say that keeping a little bit of time each day to connect with people we love can also be powerful. Even if that's just five or 10 minutes a day where we call somebody uh, that we care about just to say, I'm thinking of you, just wanted to know how you're doing. Or when we write a note, uh, perhaps to someone who we haven't talked to in a while. Um, these are small but powerful moments. And the reason that it doesn't take a lot of time uh, to generate a tremendous amount of value for ourselves is because we are hardwired to connect as human beings. When we experience a moment of deep connection, it can change how we feel for hours or days. Think about the last time you encountered somebody at the grocery store who was uh, you know, checking you out uh, and who actually smiled at you and with genuine uh, care asked how you were doing and waited to to listen to the answer. That whole interaction may have taken 15, 20 seconds, but it likely left you feeling better. If you work in a building, for example, where uh, there's a security guard, uh, as I you know did when I was um, you know working at a hospital up in Boston, there were times where the security guards would pause and just ask me how I was doing as I walked in, and I I just remember how 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 good that made me feel. So it's important as we think about loneliness as as tough a problem as it is, as common as it is during the modern age, and as consequential as we have learned it to be, uh, given that loneliness has a powerful impact on our health, increasing our risk from uh, everything from dementia to premature death, to heart disease, to depression and anxiety. It's also important to know that the solutions to loneliness are almost disarmingly simple, and that we each have the power to be that solution, to be that source of healing for one another, because we have the ability to show up in people's lives, to be present, to be kind, and to be compassionate.
0: Now, Vivek, one of the reasons we're incredibly grateful that you found this time with us is because you have this new responsibility in relation to tackling the coronavirus crisis in in the States. And I just wanted at the end of our conversation to reflect Upon that. Obviously, they the immediate issue now of, of how you get the disease under control. But I wonder what you are hoping will be the learning that we take from this crisis when hopefully, as a result of the brilliant, amazing scientific breakthroughs of vaccination that we do come out of it. What do you see as what we've learned over or what in perhaps particularly in the States you, you've learned over this last yeah, and what do you see as the opportunities because one of the obsessions we have here about the at the rsa is about the relationship between crisis and change and that crisis can often be a catalyst for change and there's been a lot of interesting comparisons for example with aids and hiv and how you know i remember that crisis and i remember how at the beginning of it it felt as though it, it, it could increase bigotry it felt as though uh the gay community in particular might retreat because words like gay plague were being thrown around. And yet, despite the terrible, awful tragedy of that disease, what ultimately happened was not only did we make the health breakthrough, which means that that HIV is no longer a a terminal diagnosis, um, it's manageable, but also the gay community took control. They came out, they they asserted themselves, and that has led to enormous advances in terms of LGBT uh, rights and, um, and respect. This is a health crisis. Is there the scope for us to come out of that in the same way as ultimately we came out of AIDS and HIV on a, moment, a progressive direction?
1: Well, it's the right question at this moment, Matthew. I mean, this pandemic has upended so many of our lives, the entire world. It's had profound impacts on the economy and most of all on our health, given how many of us have lost loved ones uh, to this disease. And just two weeks ago, I uh, lost an uncle uh, to COVID-19, our sixth relative uh, who passed away uh, from COVID. And you know, I'm just one of many people uh, who has lost people they care about. But I do think that there are some important lessons uh, from COVID. Many of them have to do with our healthcare and public health system, how we need to be better prepared for pandemics, how we need to invest in a stronger public health infrastructure, how we need to build a healthcare system uh, that is more integrated with public health that focuses on prevention and that makes affordable, accessible, high quality care available to everyone. And some countries have done better at that than others, uh, no question. But I think there's another deeper lesson uh, from COVID Uh, a lesson about our interconnection and our interdependence, Um, it is very clear now that if you take the right measures on your own, if you wear a mask, if you wash your hands, if you keep distance from others, avoid small indoor gatherings, you may prevent yourself from getting COVID, but unless we are working together to make those kind of decisions and choices easy for everyone, then schools aren't going to reopen. Workplaces aren't going to get back up and running. Our healthcare systems will continue to be uh, overtaxed and society essentially won't heal. And so one of the lessons of COVID is we can't respond alone. So we have to be able to mount a unified, thoughtful response. And I mean unified, not just on a country basis, but even between countries, we need to be able to work together and put our common welfare Uh, ahead of uh, individual choices. And to me, this really brings up the biggest point of all, which is when you look at the divisions and the fissures that have developed over decades in society and that have deepened, particularly our political divisions, um, those present a clear and present threat to our ability to respond, not just to pandemics, but to other threats we face, whether that's climate change or whether it's racism or other systemic inequalities uh, that we're dealing with. And so when I was writing this book on on loneliness, I saw it as deeply connected to what was happening in the world. Um, I see it as deeply connected to how we need to respond to COVID because if we want to build a unified response to COVID and future pandemics, If we recognize that we are truly interconnected and our welfare depends on one another, that means that we have to strengthen our ability to act together, which means we have to be able to talk to one another. And right now, the truth is, it's not easy for people to talk to one another. It's much easier to get siloed in social media rooms where people have the exact same beliefs you do and to hate the other side, uh, whatever that other side may be but that has real consequences on our ability to respond. And we've seen that as the pandemic has been politicized in many countries, especially in the United States. So the way I come at this though, is that you don't build dialogue by throwing people in the same room who have different views and telling them to talk and find common ground. Rather you build dialogue by building relationship first because relationship is the foundation for dialogue. The reason we can have family members over during the holidays for a holiday dinner, and people who we may have you know significant disagreements with on political issues, faith issues, all mm-hmm. kinds of issues. but the reason we can do that and still love them is because we have built a relationship mm-hmm. with them. and we know that they are more than their view on a single subject. We can see them in their broader humanity. That's what we have to come to do with one another now, um, because as we if we want to build, national and global unity that starts with the relationships we build in our day-to-day lives. Um, and as a society, we have to think about how we create more opportunities uh, to do that. Um, this is actually why I think loneliness is and and building a more connected world is both a health issue, it's an economic issue, it's a national security issue. And it's fundamentally connected to the happiness and well-being uh, of our kids and future generations. That's why I think it deserves to be an area of national focus. And if I can give uh, kudos to the uh, United Kingdom and the, gov- the the decision that your government made and that many of your nonprofit organizations made to prioritize uh, loneliness, to build a national strategy around it, that's the direction I think that we need more countries to move in in terms of making the issue of loneliness and connection a national priority, recognizing the profound impact it has on our well-being as individuals and as a society.
0: Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. Thank you, Vivek, for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule to talk to me. It's been moving and fascinating. And you have all our kind of hopes and support for the new roles that you're taking on. I mean, for us in the UK, it's very exciting to watch the Biden administration and the steps that it's taking. And to see someone like you being brought into government is uh, is, is part of what make, gives us optimism about the direction America is going in. To those of you watching, I hope you've taken as much away from our conversation as I have. It's, if it's given you a flavour of the sorts of insights um, that you can find in Vivek's book, Together, Loneliness, Health and What Happens When We Find Connection. I can highly recommend it. I've been reading it all week. As I say, it's been my companion. Uh, information about where you can get hold of a copy will be in the sidebar chat here and on the RSA events social media. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, please feel free to share this event with your networks, follow our channels for future event updates, and check out the RSA website to discover more about how to get involved with the work of our global fellowship. Thank you again, Vivek. Good luck in your new roles, and thank you all
1: for watching. Thanks so much, Matthew. I really enjoyed our conversation.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.